Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome back to Dr. Raj's Sleep Board Review. Where did we leave off last time? We were talking about hypersomnias, talking about narcolepsy. And I do have one straggler of a question. So this is going to be a 35-year-old woman without significant past medical history presents for excessive daytime sleepiness. The Epworth sleepiness scale score is 16. And this is going to be our classic scoring system that we use to say, well, in general, how sleepy are you? You know, for my sleep fellows, there are other scoring systems that we use to figure out how sleepy are you right now during this lecture. That's the Stanford score, the Karolinska score, but Epworth, in general, how sleepy are you? And anything above 12 is sleepy. The, the symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness have progressed over the past three years. She works as a secretary and a homemaker and subjectively estimates her total sleep time to be around seven hours per night with a typical sleep schedule of a bedtime at 12 midnight and an out-of-bed time around 7 a.m. She notes that her symptoms are relatively consistent throughout the month. She denies any snoring, restless leg symptoms, cataplexy-like symptoms, or medication use. She notes that she has two sisters who have similar complaints of daytime sleepiness. She is instructed to keep a sleep log or diary, whatever word choice you like, for about a week, and is then scheduled for an overnight PSG followed by an MSLT. This is how we do it because we want the PSG to rot things like sleep apnea. We want to make sure you're getting at least six hours of sleep. And then we do that MSLT, which is going to be probably the test of choice when we're working up type 1 and type 2 narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. Here's the results of the PSG. She's definitely slept. Efficiency is 95%. She slept in one minute. Her REM latency is 54 minutes. And they broke down the sleep stages, 5% stage 1, uh, 55% and 2, 32% and 3, and stage R is 8%. Pretty good. Zero is the AHI. Barely any PLM uh, periodic limb movements, and the SAT was good. So you know what? They moved on to the MSLT, and her mean sleep latency, they did five total naps, was 7.2 minutes. And I think we mentioned a million times. We always are thinking, you know, for the MSLT by itself, it has to be less than eight minutes as the mean sleep latency number. They do a urine tox to make sure she's not doing bad drugs or even CBD, and they're all negative. They do a sleep log as you should. We always like a little actigraphy and sleep logs before we do this. And it shows nightly sleep averaging 5.5 hours per night. Which of the following is correct? Diagnosis based on her clinical history and objective testing. Is this A, narcolepsy without cataplexy, meaning type 2 narcolepsy? B, idiopathic hypersomnia? C, behaviorally induced insufficient sleep? D, menstrual-related cyclic recurrent hypersomnia? Anakit, why don't you start us off? What do you think? C. And what makes you say C, Anakit? Because when you look at the MSLT, you can see with each nap that her sleep latency is going up more and more and more. So it seems like she has a sleep debt that needs to be made up. You definitely uh, looked at the MSLT as far as what you see, but that doesn't really necessarily that this is not, you know, idiopathic hypersomnia. What here in this slide says, you know what, this is insufficient sleep. What box? There's a pink box, a blue box, and the a green box. The green box. Why did you, why the green box? Because it shows that she's sleeping five and a half hours 
Exactly. You know, for someone our age, you know, and this patient's age, she should be sleeping somewhere between seven to nine hours a night. And back to the beginning of the hypersomnia section, Anakid, what is the most common cause in the entire planet of hypersomnia? Inadequate sleep. Insufficient sleep. Well said. And that's why it's very important to look at those logs. Sometimes we do actigraphy before pursuing a PSG MSLT just to make sure we're getting enough sleep. Very good. The answer here is going to be C. And there's a little picture of actigraphy that rhymes with the word activity. It tells the truth behind your sleep. So let's talk about some circadian rhythm sleep disorders. When we talk about these, these are diseases of incorrect sleep timing. So each person has a circadian cycle referred to as tau and this you know circadian cycle is around 24 hours but it's not an exact science it could be a little less than 24 it could be above 24 but most people are going to be around 24.2 that's going to be their a circadian cycle which means that we are just most of us are meant to be night owls it's easier for us to stay up later at night and i think many of us listening today can attest to that so there's supposed to be a synchronization between the 24-hour solar day, meaning when does the sun get up and when does the sun set, and each person's circadian rhythm. And that's going to be what we call entrainment. You want to be entrained to be in synchrony with the solar day. And how do we do this? It's accomplished by external cues, and we call these cues zeitgebers. And the way I remember that, the most potent external cue to entrain our circadian rhythm is light. And zeitgebers kind of rhymes with the word light givers, and that's what it is. Light really helps us out. Lots of light in the morning, not a lot of not light at night. So circadian disorders occur when the circadian system fails to promote sleep and wake at the correct times. Now, I got to tell you, there are people who say I'm a morning person or uh, I'm an evening person or a night person. That in itself is not a disorder. Anytime we start using disorders, it's affecting your quality of life during the day. So I just want to make a note of that. So this is ex a nice example about how do we balance our circadian rhythm with our homeostatic drive. How do we sleep and how do we wake? Remember, once again, the homeostatic drive is a sleep drive. It's called process S. And we mentioned in our first lecture, it's really driven by adenosine. And adenosine accumulates during the day because, you know, you're working and exercising and thinking. You're breaking down ATP. Adenosine builds up. And look at these arrows. They're building up, 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 up. And as adenosine builds up, you really want to sleep. Down here is your circadian rhythm. It's called process C. And it really tells you how awake, how aroused are you going to be. So, of course, it increases during the day, but you could tell right around noon, it kind of plateaus. You know, people think, hey, it's nap time. But then it really dips down at night, starting around 10, 11 at night, because you want to sleep. You don't want to be alert. So it's really this balance between the homeostatic drive and circadian rhythm that really makes you want to fall asleep and wake up. And the space between here is going to be what we call the larger the space between the homeostatic drive and the circadian rhythm is really that, 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 that sleep stress, that stress to want to sleep. So when we talk about how do we influence, you know, sleep by two main things, light and melatonin, which are two common treatments that we use for circadian rhythm disorders, well, there's something called the phase response curve. So on the y-axis, if you go above this curve going up, this is a dancing. And if you go below, you're delaying. On the x-axis, this is just time in a 24-hour cycle. And what happens is, is that right in this box in the middle is sleep. 
And depending upon when you expose in the light or when you expose in the melatonin, you'll do different things. So here in the box of sleep, this is why there is a phase response curve to melatonin. And in this case, the phase response curve to melatonin is going to be in the blue. And the phase response curve when we talk about, you know, light is going to be uh, in the red. So when we think about what happens here is that if we want to give light, you know, before you sleep, what's going to happen is it's going to delay your sleep. So you can imagine right here that here is sleep. We give light before their their actual bedtime, like giving light in the early evening. What's going to do? It's actually going up. It's going to advance their sleep. They're actually it's going to delay their sleep even more. So you're going to you have bright light in the evening. While when we talk about things like melatonin, when you give melatonin up here in the evening, what's going to happen? It's going to actually advance it. So light uh, before sleep will delay you even more. You'll sleep later and later and later and later. But when you give melatonin before sleep, well, you're going to advance it because you'll use that for like delayed sleep phase syndrome. So they're showing about when you want to give things like light and melatonin relative to sleep to see what happens and how to help out with their circadian rhythm disorder. And when we talk about, you know, is there some science down to the genomic level about this? The answer is yes. We definitely have some genes. There's something called the clock gene and the BMAL, B-M-A-L gene. And they actually produce proteins called the cry and pair proteins. And, you know, in general, especially for the sleep medicine fellows, the cry protein is involved in delayed sleep phase syndrome. The PER uh, PER, especially the PER2 protein, is involved in advanced sleep phase syndrome. So there are some genetics behind it. But of course, many people have delayed sleep phase syndrome. Most of the time, it's behaviorally induced. But there are people who do have a genetic predisposition to be night owls or to have advanced sleep phase syndrome. So when we talk about these circadian rhythm disorders, you know, the big thing that these are a family disorders affect the timing of sleep. And if these patients were allowed to sleep, things would be just fine, you know, but because of school and work and social needs, they will be sleep deprived and will have many of the manifestations of sleep deprivation. So when we talk about what are these disorders for the boards, there are two broad categories, everyone. Number one is going to be extrinsic and number two is going to be intrinsic. So when you have an extrinsic circadian rhythm disorder, the problem's not going to be in your internal body clock. It's outside. It's things like jet lag. And just to let you know, to get jet lag, it's not just going from LA to Vegas. I mean, you have to get at least two time zones and you got to have symptoms. You know what I mean? And when we talk about something that's very common is going to be shift work. These are extrinsic causes. Intrinsic causes, well, we think about the big four. Of course, you mentioned earlier that in elderly individuals, they tend to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier in the morning. We call that advanced sleep phase disorder if there are symptoms. That's the morning lark. Many people, younger individuals in high school, college, they have delayed sleep phase syndrome. If they have symptoms called disorder, that's the night owl. There are individuals, unfortunately, who have limited sight or are blind. They'll have a progressive worsening of their circadian rhythm. We call that a free running disorder or now known as non 24. And there are people who have unfortunately Alzheimer's dementia where there's really no pattern. They'll be sleeping throughout the day. And this is an irregular sleep wake cycle. And just as a one liner, I'll say this much when we talk about this phase response curve right here, once again, when you advance, think about going east of here right now. I'm giving this lecture in Los Angeles, California. If I go to New York, it's like it's going east. So it's like 
trying to uh, you set the clock later and you go to bed earlier is what happens. And it's tough. Traveling west is always easier if you're going from New York back to L.A. And what do you do? You set the clock earlier and you go to bed later, which is easier for a lot of people because you just kind of want to stay up. Because I mentioned that most of our circadian rhythms are 24.2. We're kind of geared up to stay up later. And like I mentioned, to use the word disorder for these circadian rhythm things like advanced and delayed sleep phase, you got to have symptoms for at least three months and you got to at least try to make a diagnosis by diaries, logs or using something like actigraphy. So to kind of mention some of some quick one liners, when I talk about that free running circadian rhythm disorder, otherwise known as non 24, that these are individuals who unfortunately are going to be blind. They can't use the light as their to entrain their circadian rhythm. They go to bed later and later and later. There is an FDA approved medication for this. It's a melatonin agonist, goes by the brand name Hitlios, and it works more on the MT2 receptor, which is really meant for circadian rhythm shifting. And for my sleep fellows, this medication also got FDA approval for a very rare syndrome called Smith-McGinnis syndrome. They have an inversion of the melatonin cycle. These poor kids are doing strange things like they're just hugging themselves and licking their arms like cats. Very strange. So let's do a question. Uh, Anakin, who do you want to do this or do you want to take this one? Serena. Serena. Serena, are you there? Yeah. Oh, awesome, man. All right. Hey, look at this. Assuming the daytime work and nighttime sleep as a habitual schedule right here. And I and looking at this diagram over here, what safest time to drive home following an overnight shift. So you see process S, which is the blue process C. Obviously, it's an overnight shift. So they're not going to bed. So they're going to be sleep deprived. I'm sure you've done this quite a few times for us, Serena, when you do your call, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. So think of this as you, Serena. When do you want to drive home? You know what I mean? Here's the times in the place. Here's 7 a.m. going to 11 at night. And there's A, B, C, D. When do you want to drive home? So process as the higher you go, the more you want to sleep, right? So maybe I'm going to say A. All right. So you want to go with A. So what the main thing you want to look at here is a difference between the homeostatic drive and the um and the circadian rhythm where you have the biggest difference the widest space between that means you really want to sleep pretty bad when do you want to sleep pretty bad is when serena eight okay so is that a good time to drive home nope now, when do you want to drive home serena d d you're awesome man so, hey, Serena, this is you, dude. You're going to like slam this one in two seconds. Same graph. So, and they're going to ask you this on the, the what's it called? The poem boards because you guys do so much night shift for. So in this one, what is the best time to initiate sleep after an overnight call for the USC Pulmonary Critical Care Sleep Fellowship? A. You're awesome. And why is it going to be A? Because of the sleep pressure, which is a difference. So problem is, Serena, when you're done with your call, do you go home at 7 a.m. in the morning and, and sleep right away? Nope. Oh, that's what worries me, man, because I care about you. So <laughs> be A right here. So about <laughs> some, some parasomnias. Can you go back one slide? So the red line is the sleep homeostasis. Yeah, so it's process S. And normally, if you weren't doing call, it goes up and goes down and goes up and goes down in our 24-hour period, right? It goes up because adenosine is building up. And then you say, dude, I need to go to bed. It's like at least 11, right? When you go to bed, Serena? Uh, 10. 
11. Okay, yeah. And <laughs> then what happens is your homeostatic drive what? It dips down because you're what? You're sleeping. But mm -hmm. you do call for us. What happens to your sleep pressure? It keeps on what? Oh, it keeps going up. Okay, I get it. Okay. And that's why it breaks the, 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 the space between the circadian and the process S. Sound good? Yeah. Cool, man. You. Oh, you're welcome, Serena. All right. Serena, do uh, you want to do this one or do you want to give this to someone else? This is a tough question. No one, you could do it, Serena. Sure. Okay. 50-year-old woman complains of a sudden loud noise in her head during the wake-sleep transition and awakening during the night. Once awake, she denies headaches, any pain complaints, neurological deficits, incontinence, or amnesia for the event. She has complaints of difficulty falling asleep at bed after her routine awakening because you know what? She's concerned this really scary, sudden loud noise is going to happen again, you know? She denies any other medical history and is currently taking no meds. Results of her physical exam are pretty normal and her neurological exam is pretty normal. So based on the history, the best initial recommendation for this person would be to what, Serena? Do you want to get an MRI? Want to give a TCA, which is clomipramine? Want to give some reassurance? Or it is a headache. Why don't we just pop her full of non-steroidal and hope she doesn't get a gastric ulcer? Probably not an MRI. Okay. Um, what do you think is going on here, Serena? The sudden loud noise. Nice. There's a term for it, right? Like when you wake up in the morning, that sound or smell that you get, is that... The sound also apply to it? No? Well, this is actually going to be a setup for what we're going to be talking about. This, we're going to be talking about parasomnias. And we'll define what they are, but they're unwanted actions, behaviors, thoughts, dreams, all these things that occur as you're falling asleep, transitioning into sleep and waking up. And she's hearing this crazy loud noise, like a gunshot, like a chandelier. And she's scared to go back again because she doesn't want to hear the crazy noise. This is called exploding head syndrome. So when we talk about exploding head syndrome, you just want to provide some reassurance because you know what? That head's really not going to explode. And it's actually a type of parasomnia. Like I mentioned that it's kind of like a very loud symbols crashing. And, you know, what causes it? Things that cause predispose you to many parasomnias, like being sleep deprived or multiple awakenings throughout the night. So parasomnia's definition are undesirable physical events or experiences that occur as you're entering into sleep, within sleep, or during arousals from sleep. That's like the verbatim definition of parasomnias. So they also include abnormal movements, behaviors, emotions, perceptions, and dreams. And most parasomnias, I mean, they're going to be treatable. And most parasomnias happen in kids. And not as many parasomnias happens in adults, and they do happen in adults, and they are recurring. We do have to look for underlying sleep disorders. So when we categorize parasomnias, everyone, we put them in two broad categories. Do they happen in non-REM sleep, you know, or do they happen in REM sleep? And some examples could be things like confusional arousals. And this is going to be when you just suddenly wake up in the night and you kind of mumble a few words and go back to bed. You know, if you're a kid, you can have these horrible things called night terrors. Those who are parents out there will know what they are. They happen when, you know, when they're two or three years of age, they're unconsolable. They don't remember any of this. Sleepwalking can occur. Always remember it's predisposed and people taking Ambien and people taking lithium. Or you could have parasomnias occur during REM. The two big ones are nightmares. This is why no one should watch the squid game. I heard it. People are getting a lot of nightmares from that. And uh, something called REM movement disorder. 
So there are many crazy things that happen when you have parasomnias. And one of the craziest ones I heard about was this sleepwalker that fell off a six-story building. And what is the worst combo when you take a sleep aid? Number one, don't take a sleep aid, is when you mix it with alcohol. It's never just the Benadryl. It's usually the Benadryl and the alcohol, the ambient and the alcohol. Horrible things can happen sometimes when we talk about parasomnias. So let's talk about a REM, you know, parasomnia called REM sleep behavior disorder. So when do we think about this? This is going to be a parasomnia that tends to occur in males, tend to occur in the elderly. And usually when the patients come to you, the partner, unfortunately, maybe uh, the wife will have like a bruised eye or, you know, something happen because these individuals are reenacting their dreams. And these dreams that they're reenacting aren't dreams of them playing Scrabble and chess. I mean, these are dreams of being chased by pirates or dreams of like running and kicking and fighting. Unfortunately, many people who have post-traumatic stress disorder are predisposed to, you know, REM behavior disorder. And of course, you know, I mean, if you want to make this diagnosis, well, there's a couple parts to it. Number one, they got to have abnormal dream reenactments. That's usually what they say. And you'll ask about their dreams and they're usually going to be these running, kicking, chasing type dreams. You want to show that there's a lack of atonia in REM sleep. I mentioned earlier, this is the opposite of sleep paralysis. We do want to be paralyzed in REM sleep and here they're not. So we do a sleep study to look at REM stage sleep and see if they're having muscle tone. And there's very specific criteria of how we do that. So when you can combine these things together, you can make the right diagnosis. And of course, when we talk about treatment, it's always about safety to the patient and safety to others first. You definitely want to look for other things that can cause REM movement disorder. There's something called pseudo-RBD, and that really is meaning if someone has obstructive sleep apnea. If you have obstructive sleep apnea, you know, you get multiple awakenings and arousals, and when they wake up, they may just kind of mumble a few words or move around. It's not REM behavior disorder, it's pseudo-REM behavior disorder, and of course, treat the obstructive sleep apnea. Look at the medications. We said so many times that they're on SSRIs or SNRIs. They actually prevent atonia in REM sleep. And then if we do want to treat them after we talk about protecting yourself and others, environmental precautions, you could use clonazepam, a benzodiazepine. Of course, there's risks when you use a benzodiazepine. And we usually doses starting at 0.5 milligrams, usually up to two. We could use melatonin. Now, look at the dosing here, everyone. I I rarely use melatonin beyond three milligrams. You could go up to 12 milligrams when we talk about REM behavior disorder. Buzzwords for anyone's board exams is realize that that when you have a REM behavior disorder, it's associated with these horrible alpha synucleopathies. And what are, you know, some diseases under these alpha synucleopathies, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, multi-system atrophy, you know, formerly known as shy dragger syndrome. So you want to uh, uh, usually we work very closely with neurology when we think about these cases. This is going to be a a look at an epoch where this is going to be REM sleep. And if you look at the muscle tone here, the legs in blue, there's a lot of movement. Here's when you're in REM sleep. All right. Well, this one is for the goat. Um, Serena, who do you want to do this one? Are you there, buddy? Hello. Hey, Drew. So we have an 18-year-old high school student complains of abnormal sleep-related behaviors. And his parents accompany him to the evaluation. They report that over the previous four months, the patient has repeatedly been found 
to be wandering seemingly aimlessly in the house at night. One time he urinated uh, in the hallway outside his bathroom when parents, he just stares past him and doesn't respond to their questions. However, he does not resist when he's led back to the bedroom where he would get into bed and promptly return to sleep. These nighttime wanderings occur around 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning. He typically goes to bed shortly after 12.30 a.m. He falls asleep within a few minutes. He wakes up at 6 a.m. Damn, he's sleep-deprived on school days. As late as 11 a.m. on weekends and has no recollection of these abnormal nighttime events when asked by his parents the following day. He describes being sleepy during his morning classes and has fallen asleep in class on several occasions. He has no medical or medication history. They do a polysomography with video recording is performed and captures one of these unusual behaviors and is described as similar to the ones that his parents have taught uh, mentioned. During which of the following sleep epochs is this abnormal sleep related behavior most likely to develop? So, Drew, what type of parasomnia are we describing in this 18 year old? Rain disorder. Well, does well. I guess we don't know just yet. But he's 18 years of age. It seems like you know. Does REM usually occur around 1 a.m. to 2 a.m.? Most of our REM. No. It occurs closer to what? Closer to waking. waking. Closer to the morning, right? And he's a young kid. You know what I mean? So I think. Well, it's like, a calm time sleep. It's, I think this is someone who's sleep what? Sleepwalking, right? Looks like he's sleepwalking. He's wandering aimlessly around the house. You know what I mean? So which uh, sleepwalking is most likely to develop in which one of these epochs? So we have epoch one over here. We have uh, epoch two, epoch three, epoch four. Now, Drew, because this is a tough question, I'll let you phone a a sleep fellow friend if anyone's listening. But uh, you let me know what you think. I I really don't have any idea. This one over here is going to be classically N3 sleep. And how do I know it's N3 sleep? Well, it has these wonderful things called delta waves. So this is N3. This is going to be N2 sleep. Any guesses why we're calling this N2? Some other kind of waves. <laughs> and some K complexes over here. Dude, this, uh, there, there better not be any sleep fellows listening here, dude. Not helping poor Drew out. These are going to be some spindles. This is going to be REM sleep over here because you see the rapid eye movements. This is wake. They're not even sleeping. So which stage of non-REM does most uh, non-REM parasomnias occur in? Is it going to be delta sleep and three and two REM or awake? Or which one do you think? And two. Occur in delta sleep. It's going to be N3 sleep. So Anytime you have more N3 sleep, more Delta sleep, that's where we see these parasomnias. So kind of integrating how they may ask you some of the sleep stages for a pulmonary board combined with some broad common parasomnias like sleep one. I'll do this one for the team. This is a hard one. Do we have a, is Sahar, are you listening? I am, yes. How can I help? Sahar, you do this one. This is going to be for the GOAT part two. See, Sahar, if you get this one, you could be like this guy dunking over Patrick Ewing. That's Michael Jordan. What epoch combination represents the stage of sleep that seizures occurs the most and the least in? Is it going to be epoch one and two? Remember, epoch one was going to be N3. Epoch two is N2. Epoch three is RAM. Epoch four is wake. <laughs> I'm just going to generalize this. Seizures happen in non-RAM mostly. So whichever one was RAM is the least likely. Non-RAM is the most likely. Okay. 
So which on ramp does it occur most in? What, what stage? Two and three. Whichever one was two and three. Stage two and yeah. three. Yeah. So it's going to be most of the in N2, and we rarely get seizures in what? In REM. 100%. So most of our seizures occur in N2 sleep, and we rarely get seizures in REM. Very good. So let's talk about some high yield points. You know what I mean? So, you know, when we talk about sleep deprivation and seizures, so when you have sleep deprived, they can worsen seizures, untreated obstructive sleep apnea can worsen seizures, and Tremo CPAP can reduce seizures in patients who have epilepsy. Of course, I want to mention excessive daytime sleepiness when we talk about epilepsy. It's very common for epileptic patients to be very sleepy. I think a lot of us just blame everything on the anti-epileptic meds. It's the Keppra, don't worry about it. But the truth is, it's really going to be multifactorial. And one-third of medically refractory epileptics are found to have sleep apnea, which is also why we get a lot of consults from neurology. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.